The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. My special guest today is Dr. Shay David, a serial entrepreneur with a couple of big exits to his name, uh, currently founding CEO at uh, Retrain.ai, a startup developing the world's leading AI platform for skills and qualification assessment and workforce retraining, while working with employers and governments to place one million people back in jobs. So uh, Retrain is basically a platform using AL, machine learning, VR, voice assistants, various other uh, modern technology in order to train humans for the jobs of the future. And they believe in machines working for people, not against them. So uh, Shay's previous venture, or most recent venture, was Kaltura, which he took from inception to 100 million plus in terms of revenue. Um, and Kaltura actually uh, IPO'd earlier in 2021. So uh, Shay, Welcome to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. Now, you've had a couple of really big exits. You're now on your third startup. What inspired you to launch Retrain.ai rather than perhaps just resting on your laurels? I think that the, the inspiring thing about Retrain is that it solves a really big problem, and that is the skills gap problem, which I think is a problem that affects probably about a billion people today. And one of the benefits of entrepreneurs is that they can see the power of technology. And I'm very inspired by the capability of technology to make positive changes in the world. So for my next venture, I wanted something that takes the great powers of technology, but maybe distributes it more evenly throughout society so that we don't create these tech bubbles like Silicon Valley, but rather use the power of technology to share the wealth and share the benefits. And I was looking for an idea that has a social benefit as well as a big technological challenge. Were you ever tempted to just relax, chill, put your feet up and say, okay, I've worked hard. Now's time to have an easy life. I took a three months break between the uh, Cultura and retrain. I actually went to Guatemala to do some yoga and climbed some volcanoes and went to Belize to do some scuba diving for a few days. But but for me, you know, real relaxation is to be in, in a flow state. It's not about putting your legs up and drinking margaritas, but it's rather to be in a working environment where you get things done. And that to me is a very relaxing activity. I also very much enjoyed the phases of building and getting the team together and helping start this uh, new organization with two wonderful co-founders, Isabella Navi, is a very exhilarating and very relaxing phase of my life. I think that uh, for any entrepreneur that had multiple startups, they know that uh, the phase where before you really have too many employees and before you have investors and before you have clients, it's actually a little break. And it's a good chance to, to rest a little bit and then things start to get hectic because before you know it, too many people wanting pieces of you and particularly clients once you're in production. So the last year for me has been all about uh, planning, and building and team building. And now the organization is accelerating and it's uh, becoming stressful again, but uh, in a good way. Now, this strong social imperative that drew you to set up uh, Retrain.ai, was there a trigger 
in your life that made you want to do something more than just build a successful technology business? Or is this something that was kind of nagging away, growing slowly and steadily over time? I think that uh, I grew up uh, parts of my life uh, in Israel. I was born in Israel, but I grew up parts of my life, most of my adult life and parts of my childhood actually in Silicon Valley. I was, uh, you can consider it fortunate or, or misfortunate to see the early days of computing. So 1980s in the Valley, I learned programming when I was a kid. My first experience with actual programming was one hour of shared computing in Palo Alto's public library where you had to write your program on code, go in exactly on time, type everything as fast as you can, run your program. And by the time you were done, your hour was up. That was kind of an early window into what computers can do uh, and really seeing the power that technology has. So for me, it's been quite obvious for the last few decades that technology is a very major part shaping our world. But I think it took a while for people to really realize how much that is true. If you look at, say, Fortune 100, Fortune 10 companies 10 years ago, there wasn't a single technology company in the Fortune 10. You'd have the Walmarts and the ExxonMobiles of the world or the Bank of America. It was retail, financial services, oil and gas. Today, five of the 10 largest companies in the world are technology companies. So that is a change that has started 30 or 40 years ago, but really in the last few years is really taking hold. And for me, that has been always kind of a nagging thought. What happens when machines are smart enough to start taking over what people can do? Where does that leave the people? And a lot of what the retrain is about is like you made a comment in your opening remarks, a strong belief that we need to have machines working for the people and not vice versa. So that's been, that's been a long, a long uh, standing idea in my head. And uh, through my activities at Cultura, Cultura developed a video platform that helped organizations share knowledge, both internally and externally. We sold the system to dozens of the Fortune 100, hundreds of the global 2000 companies. But Cultura was a video plumbing company, if you will. They were very focused on the technology, on making the bits flow through the video pipes. One of the things that I noticed, though, through talking with many of the customers, traveling all over the world, meeting CIOs, CEOs, chief learning officer, is that learning and training was a killer use case. People were using video in order to share knowledge. And I think that at retrain.ai, the idea that we can use technology in order to help people gain knowledge is pretty fundamental. And I think that one intervention point where technology can really make a difference is in helping people understand where they can learn more and how they can become lifelong learners and then help them find the right content that they can learn. So, so I think it's a lot of ideas coming together and I'm pretty excited about where this is going. Now, obviously the pandemic has got lots of people thinking about their values, what's important to them in their lives and in their careers. So do you think the timing of retrain.ai is connected to the pandemic in some direct or indirect way? Or do you think you would have launched the business irrespective of the shakeup that we've seen from the pandemic in terms of people's outlook on life, outlook on the world? I think the pandemic is a great accelerator. And I think there was some research recently from McKinsey that I think put it best, which is the area we operate is in is known as kind of the future work. And McKinsey looked at some of the statistics and they had this uh, 
kind of catchphrase I said, the future work is now because the pandemic accelerated what would otherwise be a 10 year horizon into two or three years. We're probably well into those three years. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the acceleration of adoption of automation. For many organizations around the world, there is a clear path to automation, but there's an innovator's dilemma. There's a cost upfront to automating, and many of them didn't want to do it because it was still cheaper to use labor. And with social distancing or labor shortages, many organizations are going to accelerate the timeline for automation. That's one example. The second is that, in, uh, and this is a lot of research coming out of places like, uh, say, Oxford University. If you look at the research coming out of uh, people like uh, Carl Frey, the Future of Work Institute at Oxford, one of the findings from Carl is that in times of economic recession, employers adopt labor-saving techniques. So historically, every time there was a recession, employers are trying to figure out ways to save costs on labor. So again, yet another accelerator. And the third, I think, is something that, uh, at least in the U.S., has been titled the big quit or the big resignation. Regardless of what employers are thinking, many of the people are saying, wow, now that we got off the, the hamster wheel, we're not so fast in climbing back. And many people are either not intending to come back to the office or have used this as a wake-up call to say, we actually don't want to work uh, 12-hour days so that we can make money so that we can buy things we don't need. And many of them are just either not coming back or deciding to take it easy or to change careers altogether. So those are just examples of the ways in which the pandemic is accelerating trends that are already happening. But I think that the skills gap is a problem that is generational. And I think that if we look at the impact of what we might otherwise call the fourth industrial revolution, we understand that there's a generational shift. We've seen this happen before, at least three times, but it's happening again. And when we talk about the previous industrial revolutions, we can talk about the steam engine revolution. We can talk about electricity. We can talk about the communication revolution. Each time a general purpose technology like that came to market, there was major disruption. In all three times that this happened in the past, the upshot over the long term was that the economy grew and eventually there were more jobs created than the jobs being destroyed. At the same time, the disruption for the individuals involved was catastrophic. The disruption for the companies that did not adopt fast enough were catastrophic. If you were working the cotton mills in Manchester when the steam engines were introduced and your manual labor got replaced with a mechanized factory, that meant you couldn't put put food on the table for you and your family for years to come, right? This is when the Luddites came in. They would break in at night and break the machines because there was no recourse for the people who got replaced by machines, right? If you were a lad climbing up a ladder to light gas lamps in the streets and electric lighting came in, there was no recourse for you. All the jobs for gas lighters went away overnight with electrification. And if you were in manual computer, when real, uh, not real, but when mechanized computers came in, those jobs completely disappeared. That being said, we know that in the beginning of the 20th century, more than 40% of the population worked in agriculture. Today, less than 3% of the population works in agriculture. Does that does, it, does not mean that we have 40% unemployment. It just means that all these people went into other jobs. So, so I think it's a generational shift. 
And I think that being able to solve the skills gap or at least address it is something that is beyond the pandemic. Today we have this pandemic, tomorrow there's going to be some other pandemic or God forbid something else, but the skills gap is here and this is something that we need to contend with. Well, it's great to see uh, mission-driven businesses like retrain.ai beginning to uh, have success, beginning to scale. Uh, And talking about scale, when we last spoke, you mentioned that your biggest learnings from your 16-year journey at Kaltura were customer centricity and data centricity. So I'm curious to hear more about these learnings and also how retrain.ai is applying those lessons to create yet another success story. So let's take those one by one. So first of all, what I mean by customer centricity is that at the end of the day, there is a customer. And when we think about a customer, we can think about a customer at two levels. Many of these solutions in the end have a consumer at the end. That consumer, in the case of Cultura, Cultura sold to both media businesses as well as enterprises. That consumer at the end could have been a kid watching a football match using our cloud TV solution, or it could have been an employee at a company learning some new skill at an internal TV solution. So it could be an an end user consumer. So when I say put the customer at the end, one thing is never forget the C at the end. And businesses like Cultura were B2B2C. And I always told the team, never forget the consumer at the end, but also never forget the B at the end. At the end of the day, the people that were buying this solution were buying it for a reason. They had productivity goals or they had end consumer goals. And it was always very important to remember what is the value add that our platform provided. And many companies, I think, forget that lesson. They go into a sales meeting or they go into a quarterly business review or they send an annual report to their customer and they keep talking about the technology. Our bits and bytes do this and that and our compression technology is that and our security is that. It's not interesting if it doesn't provide business value and if that business value doesn't provide end user value. So reversing the equation and asking not about the bits and the bytes and how you saved on storage or increased security or or any other kind of technical metrics that you might have. And all those are important, but they're only important if they serve the grander purpose for which your customers bought this technology. And that grander purpose is typically connected to how their end users consume their products. So that's customer centricity. The second principle of data centricity is directly related to the first in the sense of how do we actually measure this? And you know, beyond going through kind of all these catchphrases, like if it isn't metered, it doesn't matter, which is probably true. It's a fundamental approach that the whole team needs to adopt from the salespeople to the product people to the R&D people. Everything needs to be used in a concise way with data. Could we measure the impact? Could we do things better, more efficiently, provide more customer value and how could we measure that? And if you can't measure it, it doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that we have to find ways to be able to put that data in the center so that we can do better and, and close the feedback loop. And too many times we see startups developing product and they have directionally correct. They feel that something is going right, but they can't really measure it. If you can't measure it and if you can't use data, it's hard for you to close the loop. So you kind of experiment in the dark. So in that sense, that was a very important principle. At Retrain, I'm taking those learnings And as we're developing the product, we're early in the journey. We've been working on it for a year and a half. What we put at the center of our roadmap and the center of the activity is a set of what we call design partnership. So we partner with leading organizations 
leading HMOs, supermarket chains, banks, people that are undergoing very significant disruption. And we go to these uh, would-be customers and we tell them, listen, we're building something really cool. It has a lot of wires sticking out. It's not completely ready, but it's good enough to start using. Would you take it for a spin? And then we focus on their value and we focus on the data. And if we can do that fast enough, we close the loop pretty early on. And that's the beginning. That's the foundation from here we can scale on out. Now, as an entrepreneur and a business leader, you've learned some valuable lessons. We touched upon a couple of those just now. I'm sure it hasn't all been smooth sailing. I'm sure you've had a few things go pear-shaped. So what's the biggest mistake you've made during your entrepreneurial career? Something you got seriously wrong, but perhaps something that turned out to be a vital learning for you. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that was kind of early lessons, this is uh, definitely true at, at Cultura, is that we needed to get probably the fundamentals around security and workflow. Probably we could have gotten it earlier. I think that at Cultura, one of the things that when we started the company, we very much focused on the collaborative aspects of video. Our core idea was that many people could participate in the creation of consumptions of video content. And that was a great idea. People really loved it. And we wanted to skip some steps, I would say, in the beginning, saying, you know, there are other people in the market that are going to solve fundamentals. There are the big cloud companies, and they're going to take care of the video storage. And there are the security companies, and they're going to take off security. And we can come in with this collaborative cherry on top of the cake type of approach. We're going to do the shiny object, sexy stuff. And I think one of the biggest learnings was that People needed the fundamentals. People loved our ideas around creating collaborative video platforms. They loved the idea of being able to create advanced workflows with video. Almost invariably, some of those early adoptions got stuck on the fundamentals. How do you get security completely ironed out? How do you get workflow? How do you get permission, access control? And those are many things that, that to an entrepreneur seem a little boring. Do you really want to go and spend the next year on building security workflows and permission and access control? Those are problems that you think should have been solved 15 years ago. Well, it turned out that video was such a fundamentally different data type that many of the fundamental learnings that we've had from the web about how to secure a video file, how to make it accessible, how to measure it, how to measure usage around it, a lot of those lessons needed to be relearned. And I think that that's the kind of the big learning. And I think that it took us a while to get that done right, because we thought that those were easy problems that were solved and we can focus on the kind of additional layers. And I think that it took a few years to realize, no, we actually have to go back to the basics and develop some pretty fundamental technology so that a few years later, we can go back to some of the idea of the more sexy aspects of the stack, like collaboration, and like social sharing and many of the kind of more more sophisticated stuff. That's something we should have probably gotten right a little more, a little sooner. I often hear that there's a perspective that American startups and scale-ups have a huge advantage versus their European peers, because partly because they have that massive domestic market and partly because they are encouraged by their investors to go big, to raise bigger and bigger rounds, 
and to keep scaling and eventually to IPO. Whereas in Europe, not only have you got this much more fragmented home market, but you've also got much smaller rounds of funding. And there's a tendency to be pushed to a quick exit. That's why so few European businesses become truly global leaders. And since you've got feet in both camps or in both geographies, shall we say, what's your perspective on the the US versus European tech startup ecosystem? I think you're right. And I think that if we had this conversation five or 10 years ago, I would agree with you completely. But I think that it's changing very rapidly. And I think that it's changing in two meaningful ways. One is that the global markets are eclipsing the US market in terms of size, in terms of potential market. It used to be that startups needed to scale up in the US, then they'd open their international office, probably in London or Singapore, their first office, and then expand to the rest of Europe, the rest of Asia, and then maybe eventually Latin America as well. And there used to be kind of this rule of thumb that you were successful in America, and then you could double your sales if you went global. Today, that's no longer the case. The US is probably only a quarter of the global market, and the international market is probably three quarters of the market, and therefore, Many organizations are internationalizing dramatically sooner than they otherwise would. Many organizations are opening their London or Singapore or Hong Kong office pretty much in parallel with the U.S. So I think there's recognition and there's also recognition from the investors that the global markets are important. I think that uh, companies like uh, Apple, for example, sell probably more phones in China than they sell in the U.S. And I think that if it's true for Apple, it's probably true for for many other businesses, not only consumer, but also enterprise businesses. So I think that's one fundamental change. The second is, and you touched upon it, is that the funding ecosystem is changing dramatically. To begin with, all the big US venture firms, without exception, now have international offices. Many of them have offices in London, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in Beijing. Many of them are starting to open up field offices in 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 other cities as well, and we operate a lot of our business out of Tel Aviv. Many of the big funds have offices there. So I think that access to capital is becoming dramatically easier, and you're starting to see those big rounds in Europe. And in addition to that, there's a, a whole slew of new European or global-centric funds that are developing. So I think that if you look at kind of global unicorn index, the US still leads, but I think China is a close second, and Europe is a whole ecosystem is probably closer. Last thing I'll say is that if you consider EU as one joint economic area, despite of say Brexit or a lot of the political fault lines that exist in the EU, the EU is a bigger market than the US in terms of number of people, size of the economies and whatnot. So there is tremendous potential. And I think that the challenge for businesses is to figure out how, despite the lack of uh, homogeneity, they can actually access those markets. So I think that the future is going to continue this trend. I think that the focus and the shift is moving best back eastwards. And I think that uh, businesses today are going to have a very hard time having global dominance if they don't take Asia and Europe seriously very early on in their startup life. Exactly. And who's inspired you most during your entrepreneurial journey? I think that, you know, as cliche as it may sound, I actually think I learned a lot, obviously, kind of reading kind of the classic biographies of people like Steve Jobs and whatnot, but from recent entrepreneurs, 
despite his controversial demeanor, I actually like Elon Musk a lot in the sense of his commitment to always going back to fundamental principles. That's uh, I, I try to ignore his bad boy attitude and stick to the one principle that I think he is committed to, which is go back to fundamentals. If there's a big problem, don't get stuck on the details, but really dig into the fundamentals. In his case of, say, SpaceX, the fundamentals were the cost of sending one kilogram of payload to orbit. If you could cut the cost of that by one-tenth, we're in business, right? To do that, he figured out early on that the only way to cut an order of magnitude out of the cost was to have reusable parts. To do that, you needed to develop capability to reland your rockets. So for the next five or 10 years, they focused on the relanding of the boosters, which they did. Once you do that, you can build back up. So I think that that's a very fundamental principle. So I want to take that away as, a, as kind of an inspiration. The second thing I learned from Elon is that you actually have to combine knowledge and, and kind of fundamentals from multiple areas in order to get a real disruption. It's very hard to get incremental change if you're focused on a very small domain. So in their case, it was about meteorology and physics and rocket fuel and aerodynamics and many other disciplines to make a fundamental change like that. I'm trying to apply those lessons at Retrain. And in Retrain, part of what we do in our systems that tries to understand the skills gap and create occupational opportunities for people is really combine data from multiple domains that otherwise would be very different in terms of creating real-time labor data, which is one domain, people analytics, which is another domain, learning and training, which is another domain, assessment. So trying to combine multiple areas of the market into one platform, creating a unified language for those areas of the market and going back to fundamentals and asking, why couldn't we do that? Why can't we really understand skills of people, skills of jobs, and be able to, to go back to the basics is a principle that I try to employ every day. I had the pleasure of um, meeting and, and listening to Elon some years ago at um, TechCrunch Disrupt in um, San Francisco, before he had his bad boy image, I have to say. <laughs> I agree with you. He's uh, a really inspirational speaker and uh, a true a true innovator. So hopefully you and the team at Retrain.ai will have the opportunity in the next few years to be as disruptive in your markets as Elon's been in his markets, but without uh, without that bad boy, absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> without that bad boy image on the on the side. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your learnings and your vision. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 